0: So let's read Mark 9, starting in verse 1. He said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah and appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then Jesus, or then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not want, know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. And now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he answered and told them, Indeed, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So they go up on this mountain. Um, At the end of the last chapter, you know, this is carried over uh, Mark eight thirty eight, Jesus said, talked to them about taking up their own cross daily. Well, He says that in Luke and, and following Him, taking up their cross, following Him and losing their life. And if they lose it, they'll save it. If they lose it for His sake, the Gospel's sake. And they ends that chapter, verse 38 of Mark 8, He says, For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation of Him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels, and then uh, Jesus continues speaking. We got a chapter break here, but he goes on speaking. And uh, after, or uh, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. It's a difficult place to to divide. Some uh, gospels it's divided after this statement, and then you get after six days, starting the next chapter. You know, so either way, it's kind of kind of a bad division spot because it's all within the same context uh, david Guzik says jesus also dramatically showed that cross bearers would be glory receivers the goal isn't the cross the cross is the path to the goal and the goal is the glory of God uh, and you know matthew 8 or mark 838 he's talking about his coming in glory and he and then he says you know people standing here who won't taste of death until they See the kingdom of God present with power. So, the sacrifice of bearing the cross and following Jesus, denying the self-life, is overshadowed by the glory that will follow. As Jesus' resurrected glory is shared with those who belong to him. Here is a promise of actual seeing the kingdom present with power before tasting of death. That is, before dying. So it's implied that they will die sometime after this. They'll see this and then they will, will die. Some say this is fulfilled in the following event on the mountain. And I do think there's a natural connection with what follows in six days. This is a preview of the coming glory that will be revealed in the kingdom. It's like a preview of coming attractions. When you go to the theater and, and there's preview, you know that movie's coming, you know. You might not want it to come, but it's going to come because there's this preview. So this is a preview of coming the coming glory that will be revealed in the kingdom. Um, the same glory that will be displayed when he comes on the clouds of heaven. And when he was questioned at, uh, by the Sanhedrin in Matthew 26, 63, says, Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter that you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a picture of his second coming and the glory that will be entailed. If someone doesn't accept this, you know that this is the fulfillment of this promise that Jesus makes. There's another fulfillment later in the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. As he sees the final seven years of history of this age, he sees the second coming. He sees the kingdom age. He sees the millennium and even the new heavens and the new earth. But I think the clearest reference is to what comes soon after this statement on the the high mountain. So after six days, he takes Peter, James, John, who uh, he took aside in a few other situations. Uh, When he raised Jairus' daughter, he took them with him. When he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes them along. Uh, So he takes these three guys. The mountain is not specified. It just says he goes up into a high mountain. Mount Hermon is in the region of Caesarea Philippi where Jesus has been teaching. But six days gives enough time for travel to another mountain. The Lord is not interested in us revering special places as though they had some spiritual power or special holiness. Any church building, for example, is just that. It's a building. If God's spirit is present, that makes it special while he is present. And he is present when his people gather there because he is present in his people, the actual church or assembly. But if if God's Spirit is not present, there's no need to be at awestruck by the architecture, as though it may indeed be. I mean, the architecture may indeed, indeed be magnificent, as though it were holy, in some sense. We don't need to be struck in that way. And you know, you go in some churches, and you're you are awestruck just by the magnificence mm-hmm. of the uh, furnishings and and the design and all those. Th- sorts of things but it doesn't mean that god's present necessarily other than maybe he's present in you being awestruck by man's work is not the same as being awestruck by god's work and these three men are about to be awestruck in a high degree in genesis 28 verses 10 through 19 an example of this holy place you know an analogy uh, Genesis twenty eight, ten through nineteen is speaking of Jacob when he first comes to Bethel. Bethel is the house of God, that's the name that Jacob gives the place. It says in verse ten, When Jacob now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Not much of a pillow. I'm hoping he maybe he took his garment and put it on the rock or something. Yeah. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. So he's, just, he's having this dream. Seized the Lord and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Same promise he gave to Abraham and to Isaac. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he says, "This surely the Lord is in this place." That's Yahweh, the Lord, and I did not know it. He didn't have any sense when he got there that you know this was going to be an occurrence that God was going to be here. He said, "And the Lord's in this place," and I was totally oblivious to it. I wonder how many times we're oblivious to the <laughs> to the Lord's presence. It says, and he was afraid, <laughs> which is kind of common. It says, how awesome is this place. He was awestruck with this place because it's where the Lord is, right? And this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning, took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. So he anoints this uh, pillar, this stone that he had his head on as a sacrifice to God. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city had been Luz previously, so it was somebody else's place, you know, pagan pagan place. Bethel, the house of God. It was just a place, but then God appeared there to Jacob in a dream, and it was a special place to Jacob later. God even called him back to Bethel to remind him of and renew his faith in God and the promises that were given to him. It was after a particularly bad situation, uh, Shechem. Where his sons had been, done horrible things, and the Lord said, Go back to Bethel. And so he was able to go back there, and this was the good experience that he had had with the Lord. Uh, but, you know, later in 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, verses 26 through 33, the kingdom has been split. Jeroboam has taken the northern 10 tribes, and he has begun to set up uh, idols for the people. And it says in verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. The people were still called to go to the feast in Jerusalem. And he thought, this is bad for my kingdom because they're going to start. And a lot of them did go back and even a lot of them moved to there because of the idolatry that was being practiced in the north. We see that in other places. So he says in verse 27, if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So his his entire uh, motive for doing this is fear for his own life and fear for his own power. And it says, therefore, the king asked advice. And he made two calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's too far. And what a journey that is dangerous. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel. And he put the other in Dan. So Bethel, which had been a holy place, God had appeared to Jacob there before. Now... It's a place of idolatry. It's a place not only to be revered, not to be revered, but to be condemned because of what was going on there. And so you had one in Bethel, one in Dan. This, it, now this thing became a sin, it says, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, which was in the far north. He made shrines on the high places, made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. This wasn't the time that God had set apart for sacrifice. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. So Bethel was defiled by the idolatry of Jeroboam. The glory of God there was only a memory. Later, Bethel was regained by Judah, but it never had the same significance that it had before. So it is with men's places and men's organizations, that is their denominations, As long as they are true to the Lord and his word, his gospel, they are indeed special because the spirit of God is present. But any time they turn from his word and begin to teach falsehood and deny the truth of God for their own teachings and ideas, then they are no longer special in God's sight. Some may still cling to them longing for the past glory. And some may seek to bring restoration and a return to the ways of God. But often this is a futile attempt. If a group departs to a great enough degree, then they cease to even be a church in a New Testament sense. Calvary Chapel is a relatively new move of God. The jury is still out on whether it, as a movement, will remain faithful to God's word of truth. Some have departed. It is technically not a denomination. Each fellowship is independent. There is no national headquarters you know, there used, we used to have the joke of, about Costa Mecca. <laughs> 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 Costa Mecca was the beginnings of Calvary Chapel. And it, when Chuck was there, it was like, yeah, that's, you know, the headquarters, that's the place. But it, it never was officially that, that kind of a, a setup. Uh, it was nicknamed that when Chuck Smith was alive in there. Um, but some fellowships have gone astray and begun to teach some strange things. If correction cannot be made, they are... They're removed from affiliation and they're asked not to use the name Calvary Temple because that's a, that would be a false representation. So no place or institution is sacrosanct. We must be faithful to the Lord and his word to retain his blessing and his presence. Anyway, some say this is Mount Hermon. Others say Mount Tabor. A church was built on Mount Tabor, the church of the Transfiguration. If you go to Israel, you can visit that place. Uh, This identification was first made in the 3rd century. Some say it's another mountain. It's neither one of these two. The bottom line is that the mountain is not identified for us in God's word. If we knew, we would probably build a church on it. Oops. (laughs) And there would be all kinds of religious myths and superstitions associated with it and more. Many of the holy sites in Israel that have been identified are questionable. When Emperor Constantine became a believer, uh, some say supposedly, I'll let, go, I'll let God sort that one out, you know. He's the one who's going to decide for everybody. But when he became a believer, his mother Catherine traveled to the Holy Land and she attached names to places where she thought events took place. She identified Mount Tabor as the site and this was in the fourth century. She may have considered earlier traditions but I don't know why she selected this as the spot, or the Garden Tomb, or different different places. I mean, I would assume the Garden Tomb that Joseph's family was probably buried there later. I don't know. I don't know any reason why they would continue identifying it. Maybe they did. Maybe that's the one that's there. But you know, we're not really told identified in Scripture for any of these things. So. It is unlikely that Mount Tabor was the mount because there was a Roman garrison stationed up there uh, in the days of Jesus. So probably not. But if God wanted us to know without a doubt, he would have told us. So it uh, doesn't matter where the mountain was. Mount, Herm- Regardless, Mount Hermon had some cool associations in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 42, verses 5 and 6, where the psalmist is crying out, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. In Psalm 89, similarly, he says, uh, verse 11 and 12. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness. You have founded them. The north and the south. You have created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. So both those mountains were mentioned as you know rejoicing in the name of the Lord. And then probably the most famous one. This is a song that we sing, of course, is Psalms 133. Uh, the whole psalm. It's only three verses. <laughs> but it says, uh, it's a song of ascents, which they would sing as they were going up to Jerusalem for the feast And a Psalm of David. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment of, or precious oil upon the head. I think some translation of ointment. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garment. So when they anointed with oil they were serious about it, you know. It was poured. It wasn't, you know, we didn't use the finger. And, then, and so it ran down on his garments and down to the very bottom of his garments. And he says, it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. So cool associations with Mount Hermon. Um, snow is typically present at the summit of Mount Hermon, even in the summertime. So you, if you look up there, you see see there's white up there, you know. So Jesus and these men arrive on the high mountain. This is a new training regimen for the disciples, you know, they hike, up the, hike up the hill. It's an isolated area. They are the only witnesses to what follows. And as we're told Jesus is transfigured before them. They are all speechless for a while. But of course, eventually Peter finds his voice. Transfigured is the word metamorpho, uh, from which we get metamorphosis. This word is used in a couple of other contexts. In Romans 12 and verse 2, we're told, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's metamorphosized by the renewing of your spirit, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So just as Jesus is metamorphosed, metamorphosed, I don't know what the... Correct form is, you know, but <laughs> even as he's transfigured before them, were to be the same. And of course, in this life, it's going to be a step by step, a gradual thing. Uh, Romans twelve two is a good; e- it's good evidence for being a nonconformist. He says, "Don't be conformed to the world; rather, be a transformist, being transformed into the image of the Lord." And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, this would also be a step-by-step gradual process. Um, Speaking of the veil that was over Moses' face, and then it's taken away when people come to the Lord and they can see clearly. He says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's by the Word and the Spirit. That this transformation takes place as we look into the mirror. And then it's the mirror of His Word. That gives us His image. And then we are transformed by the Word and the Spirit into that same image. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at some point we'll be transfigured completely. Transformed completely at either the rapture or the resurrection. Uh, and we'll be just like Him with that body that He has. So we behold His glorious face as in a mirror, His glory. We don't see our own reflection in Scripture. We see His reflection. And the Spirit of God uses the Word to metamorphose us into His image. The word transfigured, this is Warren Wiersbe, the word transfigured describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. It's the opposite of masquerade, which is an outward change that does not come from within. And as Spurgeon said, for Christ to be glorious was almost a less matter than for him to restrain or hide his glory. It is forever his glory that he concealed his glory. It's forever his glory that he concealed his glory. And that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. So as he's transformed, we get a description of his clothing. It's brilliant. There is more going on than clothing. Jesus is transfigured completely. Matthew 17 and verse 2, recounting the same event, says, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. You know, Mark gives us a description of snow. Uh, We don't get a description of his person, likely because it defies description. Or they can't see it clearly because there's so much brightness. It may be quite difficult to look at directly. In Second Thessalonians chapter two verses six and eight, it tells us about his brightness, the, the uh, effect of his brightness upon those who don't believe. And uh, in Second Thessalonians chapter two verses six through eight, it says, "Now you know what's restraining that he may be revealed in his own time, holding back that coming. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so." Until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed. He's restraining; He's been restraining all this time. The coming of this lawless one. And he says of this one, Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. His brightness is for those who are unholy. It's destructive. It will destroy. But for those who follow him, it's transforming in itself. So there's this brightness. It's not an earthly brightness. He says no launderer on earth can get things that white. Uh, it's compared to snow. Uh, if you've read books about mountain climbing or seen movies or something, there's something called snow blindness. Because you're up there and it's white and the sun is shining on it and, and it, it will blind you. Uh, and so there's this brightness that, that's, coming over Jesus says he's transfigured mm-hmm. nothing dark can stand against this light mm-hmm. and the uh, first or John chapter 1 speaks of this that the light has come into the world in the darkness mm-hmm. you know they don't know how to translate this exactly did not comprehend it or did not overcome it mm-hmm. and the darkness will never be able to overcome the light in first Timothy chapter 6 verses 13 through 16 He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a description of the Father because He says no man has seen or can see, but these other uh, attributes can be applied just as equally to Jesus. And we see the brightness. We see that same brightness. Uh, These guys couldn't look directly upon it. And He's still veiled somewhat in His glory here. Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. Uh, We get a description of His glory that's different than what is seen here. And and John sees Him uh, on the Isle Isle of Patmos. And I won't read the whole thing here because I've got too many notes and it's going to be, you know, we are going to fall out before it's over. (laughs) But He also says here, In verse 16, he says, His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So you get that same mm-hmm. brightness. His countenance is his face, of course. So the Lord of glory can appear in any way that he chooses, even entirely obscuring any physical display of his glory. But have no doubt, he is the one we see on the mountain. Even before his death and resurrection, he's showing who he is. These guys are seeing Jesus clearly. We talked about that, you know, through chapter 8. They're seeing really seeing Jesus clearly now for the first time with their physical eyes. Uh, and yet they're not seeing him in all his glory. But they won't have much doubt after this as to who this guy is. And like somebody I was uh, listening to was saying that after, the, you know, after this experience, were they always anticipating like, is he going to do that now? Is he going to do that now? <laughs> uh, John one fourteen tells us about his glory. Uh, the word, of course, was God was with God in the beginning. It says, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory." This is what John's saying. We saw his glory, and he says, "The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." This is the glory of Jesus. That he's full of grace and truth. So that meant more to John than seeing them transfigured there on the mount. First John, uh, chapter one, you'll see John talking about that experience as well. That we we handled the Word of Life. You know, we touched Him and and we we saw Him and we gazed upon Him. Well, these three are now seeing Jesus more clearly than they ever have. Still, the reality will not fully impact them until later. Peter recounts it in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 15, where he says uh, to, to those he's writing to, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we saw it. And he's going to talk about this experience on the mountain he said, we re- he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him. From the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's the actual quote of his, from his baptism. But uh, Peter says, we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Referring to that experience he had with James and John. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. I like the King James uh, translation here better. We have a more sure word of prophecy. We can trust the word of God more than we can our own experiences. But we have the prophetic word confirmed. That's true also. Which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter recounting that, that experience as well. And then Elijah and Moses show up. The disciples recognize them. Mm-hmm. They know who they are. You know, We don't have any account record uh, record of Jesus later saying, Hey, you know who those guys were? I'll tell you, they were Elijah and Moses. No, they just recognized them naturally. Um, Chuck Smith uh was asked you had the question of whether we will know one another in heaven. People would ask him that, and he was a you think we're going to be dumber in heaven than we are now? <laughs> and someone else has said it this way. We will not know less in heaven than we know on earth. <laughs> we will know more. As a matter of fact, we'll know as we are known. First Corinthians thirteen twelve. 12. So I would like to be incognito myself because, you know, I don't want all my junk to be revealed. But that's not going to happen. So these two guys, Elijah and Moses, they're still alive at this time Lord, you know, they're still they're with the Lord. And one who was caught up in so one of these guys was caught up into heaven. He didn't die physically. Elijah in uh, a rapture type experience and one who passed through death. The law and the prophets represented here on the mountain and uh well, I'll get to that in a bit. Many think that these are the two witnesses who appear in the 11th chapter of Revelation mostly because of the signs that, that they perform. And I think they probably are the two. We're not, they're not named, so we can't be dogmatic about it. But we're told in Revelation 11, verse uh, 6, well, need to back up verse 5, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. Who do we see that with? Elijah. <laughs> and if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And he says they have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Elijah. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Moses. And so there's, you know, there's reasonable evidence for thinking these, these are the two guys, but we'll know someday for sure. Elijah and Moses are talking with him. So they're having this discussion. Um, The three disciples there are kind of oblivious to what's going on. They're just like still overcome. Uh, Luke tells us what they were talking about. He gives us some other details of this situation in Luke 9, verses 28 through 31. He says, it came to pass about eight days after these things that He took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, so we get this detail. He, The reason he went there was to pray on the mountain. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. Now this is a description of the power of prayer, at least in Jesus' life. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. So they were uh, not just looking like normal dudes either, you know. As a matter of fact, Peter's a little confused because they're all in glory. And it says they appeared in glory and spoke of his decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they're discussing what Jesus has just introduced the disciples to. Son of man's going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and crucified and raised on the third day. They're talking about this and it's his decease, his death, which he was about to accomplish. How many people speak of death as an accomplishment? You know, for Jesus it was an accomplishment. He was he was fulfilling prophecy. He was carrying out the mission that he and the Father and the Spirit had agreed upon. And he was he was accomplishing it. And part of you know, that couldn't have been accomplished without his decease, without his death. And so carrying on, Peter speaks up. Peter's tongue becomes untied. He and the others were greatly afraid. That is, uh, they were terrified. You can imagine. Supernatural experiences do that to natural beings. The experience may be positive or good or it may be evil, but our natural bodies were not made to be comfortable with such experiences. And So Peter speaks up and says, Hey, it's good for us to be here. I'm glad we're here, Lord. Help you guys out. Now, the mountaintop experience, you know, Peter says, this is great. And no, no doubt if you've experienced those times you know, where you're just overwhelmed with the presence of the Lord, you, you don't want to go anywhere else, you know, let's just stay here. Let's just stay here on the mountain, Peter says. And when you're having that mountaintop experience, the supernatural presence of God manifested fear and exhilaration. Even sometimes you don't want it to end. You don't want to come down. But you can't live there. Not in these bodies. Uh, Eastern meditation and drug use is about inducing these kinds of experiences, but they are not of God. They are evil and they are counterfeit. We must allow God to arrange any such encounters with Him. This is the same problem that exists with seeking signs and wonders by trying to induce them. Now, the door is open for counterfeits when we're seeking those things rather than the one who manifest those things and la- allowing all that to be up to him, his will, his timing. So, OK, we'll build three tabernacles, dwelling places. And, and I don't know what Peter's thinking. OK, us three guys can just sleep outside here on the mountain, you know. But let's three build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter's not really thinking clearly. But I don't know that anyone would be. He's just expressing it and the other guys are not. <laughs> so he didn't know what to say, so this is what he said. And then the cloud overshadows them. God is God often veiled himself in a cloud, the cloud of Shekinah, or God's glory, God's dwelling place. There was a pillar of cloud that followed them in the wilderness or led them in the wilderness, a temple. Uh, There was a cloud in the temple at the dedication of the temple and at the tabernacle where the priest couldn't even stand to minister. Uh, This is, uh, well, there was a cloud above the mercy seat when uh, the cloud of the Shekinah glory, when the high priest would go in there, when Moses went in there. So it's a bright cloud. It's not a dark cloud. There are 12 references in the Old Testament to God being veiled by a cloud like this. And uh, so you can find those in the New Testament. We find it here. We find Mary overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mention a cloud per se. Jesus' ascension, he ascends into the clouds. And when he returns, he's going to return on the clouds of heaven, as we've, we've already read. So this voice comes out of the cloud, the command this, and might emphasize that word, this is my beloved Son, hear him. This is a rebuke to Peter for his desire to honor the three equally. No, Peter, just this one. He is preeminent overall. You know, if you want to build tabernacles, build one, because <laughs> he's the one. And the idea here is you must continually hear him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So this is our need to hear him, and we have his words both in the red and the black letters, as all Scripture has been breathed by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, In Matthew 17 again, in this experience, we're given a little more detail. It says in uh, verse 6-8, through When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. So typical again, when the fear overcomes them, that Jesus always says, Fear not or don't be afraid. And in this situation, He comes and He touches them to comfort them, give them the comfort of His touch, His presence. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So Moses and Elijah are no longer there. So we want to hear Him. We want to listen, give heed to, follow, obey. This is our greatest need is to hear Jesus and then follow through. On uh, what Jesus tells us. Uh, this is not the only time a voice comes from above. Of course, at Jesus' baptism, Mark one nine through eleven, uh, as Peter quoted it, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." This is one of the few uh, appearances of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit you know, at the same time in Scripture—a joint appearance. It's, you know, like booking. <laughs> Uh, but there are other times in Scripture where God speaks from heaven. In John 12:28 through 30 uh, Jesus praying says, Father, glorify Your name. And it says, Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, An angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for Your sake. So uh, there were times... Uh, it's interesting. There were times when um, some hear the words, and others just hear that it thundered. There was times when the disciples heard what was said, but other people said, "Oh, it, it's thundering." You know? God's able to speak to those whom He wants to hear the words, and those who have ears to hear the words. So this incident passes, and only Jesus remains with them, and He He appears as before. Henry Morris notes that the vision was ended when Peter sought to equate Elijah and Moses with Jesus. Jesus, of course, is different. He's over and above any other human being. He must remain the focus above any experience. Before and after any experience and in any experience, Jesus must be the focus So He tells them not to uh, tell anyone the things they've seen till after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Uh, Matthew 17.9 calls this experience a vision. He's the only one that refers to it as a vision when they were up on the mountain. He says, don't tell anybody the things uh, you've seen. And so they kept this to themselves. Uh, They don't really get it. What does He mean by rising from the dead? And maybe they spoke to each other and said, You know how he speaks in parables and riddles? He's probably speaking of a symbolic rising, an overcoming, a triumphing, maybe over the Romans. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> but Jesus is speaking quite literally, as we know. That he's his body is gonna be he's gonna be dead. And his body is going to be raised from the dead. And so they ask him about Elijah and say, um, what it mean? Why does the scripture say Elijah must come first? They ask this because Malachi prophesied concerning his coming. In Malachi 4:1 through 6, he says, "Behold, the days are coming, and we get a picture of the second coming here. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up," says the Lord of hosts. "That will leave uh, that will leave them neither root nor branch." But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So, you know, you've got to burn them up. They're not going to have left root or branch, so they're going to be ashes under the soles of your feet. He says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments, reminding them of what they're to do. And then he says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's talking about the second coming, not the first coming. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. When the first coming he did send a forerunner which is John the Baptist and you know we've talked about it recently in the spirit and the power of Elijah not literally Elijah returning but fulfilling that role so he had a he had a a messenger someone who came to prepare the way at his first coming and Elijah shall return before the second coming Uh, that great and dreadful day of the Lord, the events preceding and surrounding the second coming when Jesus comes with the clouds of heaven and in the glory of the Father with the angels of heaven and also with the bride, the saints of the church, uh, which was still a mystery when these things were written. And then he tells them that Elijah is coming first and restores all things. He's speaking in the present tense. Elijah is still coming. And John the Baptist has passed off the scene at this time. So there's still a fulfillment. But he says, uh, he's coming first, restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He brings them back to the main issue he's been teaching them about. And they need to focus on this. You know, you're out here talking about Elijah. What about the things that are written about the Son of Man? The things I told you about that he's going to suffer and die and be raised, and of course they don't get that either. Uh, not criticizing them, I, I'll probably get much less than they've ever gotten, you know. Uh, but that's the nature of it, you know, is they're just they're not their eyes are not open to some of these things yet at this point. And then he says, um, "Well, as he talks about Elijah coming, he's, he's using two tenses here. He is coming." And he has come. He uses both those tenses. Um, and we talked about this with the spirit and power of Elijah. And in Matthew 17, verses 11 through 13, again, the same context, uh, Jesus says, Indeed, Elijah is coming first, will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. This context of suffering again. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So they do pick that up. Okay, yeah, he's talking about, okay, John the Baptist, yeah. Wait, what was he talking about otherwise? <laughs> and so he tells them, yeah, I'm telling you, Elijah has also come. But Elijah is still coming even after John the Baptist has been killed. And so we'll. You know, either see or know about later that coming of Elijah to prepare the way for the second coming, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And, you know, that's the last word we get from from God for 400 years, you know, anticipating the coming. So well, even the signs, not signs and wonders kind of signs, but these signs are talking about they are necessary they are necessary to show us, but they're not to be so focused on that they for, we forget, like, like oh, the Antichrist. You know, some people are looking for him more than mm-hmm. So, they're, they're looking the Yeah. People. You know, at the men's conference yesterday, we talked about that eager anticipation at the end of Philippians 3. Eagerly anticipating the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ and... Nobody eagerly anticipates the coming of the Antichrist or the coming of the Great Tribulation, you know. Mm -hmm. And that imminent return of Jesus for His church, it's one of the reasons we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Because if it's the same as the second coming, He can't come today. That's, you know, no point looking, no point watching. Just wait till you see all these other things happen, then you know He's coming, you know. So